the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes and 40 seconds. Make that 42, 43 after four o'clock this afternoon. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Today we're going to talk with Jack Alexander, author of uh, The God Impulse, The Power of Mercy in an Unmerciful World. He's also the founder of the Remington Group, and we're going to talk about a new study, The Mercy Journey. It grows out of a concern uh, about forgiveness and unforgiveness. It's a project, a collaboration between Reimagine and Barna. We'll tell you more about that uh, when he joins me later this hour. First, to look at some of the day's headlines, though he uh, has the public support of President Trump, it remains to be seen whether Labor Secretary Alexander Acosta's detailed defense of his handling of accused financier Jeffrey Epstein's 2008 sex trafficking case is going to be enough to ultimately save his job. Yesterday, he pushed back against calls for him to step down over his past involvement in a plea deal with Epstein, saying his office fought for a tougher punishment after state prosecutors were ready to let him walk free. Acosta, who was U.S. attorney for Florida at that time, helped Epstein secure a plea deal that resulted in an 18-month sentence. He served just 13. Uh, The deal was uh, criticized as lenient because Epstein could have faced a life sentence. He was charged this week with sex trafficking and conspiracy during the early 2000s based on new evidence. Barry Critcher, the Palm Beach County, Florida, a state attorney at the time, accused Acosta of revisionist history. The labor secretary will not escape further scrutiny. Democrats on the House Oversight Committee have invited him to testify at a July 23rd hearing that will examine his actions related to Epstein. And five Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps gunboats tried to seize a British oil tanker in the Persian Gulf on Wednesday, but backed off after a British warship approached. A senior U.S. defense official said the British warship was said to have been less than five miles behind the tanker, but soon intercepted the Iranian boats and threatened to fire to open fire. A manned um, U.S. reconnaissance aircraft was above as well, the official said, adding the Iranian forces left without opening fire. And Tucker Carlson, a Fox News commentator, has a message for U.S. Representative Ilhan Omar. Tucker Carlson tonight will not be silenced for telling uncomfortable truths. The Fox News host devoted his opening segment to Omar on Wednesday night. Um, On Tuesday, Carlson pointed out that Omar, a Somali immigrant, accused the United States of bigotry and racism in almost all of her public statements and that she doesn't seem grateful to the country that has welcomed her and given her so many opportunities. Among several points, Carlson said, no country can import large numbers of people who hate it and expect to survive. Well, Omar responded by calling Carlson a racist fool and urging a boycott of Tucker Carlson tonight. And my guess is her fans are not watching it anyway. But Carlson called the response from Omar and the left typical. They hate it when you say true things, he said during the Wednesday monologue. Omar and her allies in Congress immediately demanded that this show be boycotted. 
and pulled off the air. They didn't rebut what he said, any of the points, or even acknowledge them. They just try to silence us. He went on to say that is how they operate. The back and forth in yet another corner. The public spat between Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Got a lot nastier yesterday with the freshman congresswoman suggesting that the Speaker is singling out her and other progressives based on their race. When these comments first started, I kind of thought that she was keeping the progressive flank at more of an arm's distance in order to protect more moderate members, which I understood Ocasio-Cortez told the Washington Post. But the persistent singling out, it got to a point where it was just outright disrespectful, the explicit singling out of newly elected women of color. Ocasio-Cortez has since been called out by a member of the House Black Caucus, suggesting that she is playing the race card. Again, yet another corner, uh, this being inter-party squabbling going on. Well, law enforcement officials found human remains late Wednesday night during the search of a home believed to be the last known location of missing Kentucky woman Savannah Spurlock, who disappeared seven months ago after leaving a bar in January, according to officials. The remains will be taken to the state medical examiner's office in Frankfort for an autopsy and identification. State Police Trooper Robert Purdy said he cannot confirm the body found is Spurlock at this time because the remains were heavily decomposed. A person is being questioned in connection with the case. Spurlock, a mom of four who had given birth to twins in December, was last seen on surveillance video on the 4th of January after leaving a bar in Lexington with two men. And a second U.S. judge has rejected a Department of Justice request to replace its legal team in cases on the 2020 census as the Trump administration tries to add a contentious citizenship question. More on that when we uh, uh, are a little further into the program. The president had a press conference today that pretty much forewent that uh, means of counting. Meanwhile, immigration raids that will target thousands of undocumented immigrants in cities across the U.S. are scheduled to begin on Sunday. These are individuals who have been ordered, have gone through the entire legal process and have been ordered by a judge to leave the country. Uh, The raids, which are backed by the president, will target families who recently crossed into the U.S. and have been ordered deported. House lawmakers on Wednesday heard emotional testimony from a Guatemalan woman seeking asylum in the United States whose two-year-old daughter contracted a lung infection while at an Immigration and Customs Enforcement Detention Center in Texas and died shortly after their release. Speaking of uh, detention centers, the Washington Examiner says border officials in El Paso, Texas this spring began separating migrants in federal custody based on nationality due to hostility and tension between Central and South American detainees who were being held in the same cells and even areas of facilities, according to several federal agents. The practice continued at least... um, into June, it's almost as if cultural differences and assimilation matter. And the Democratic-led House Oversight and Reform Committee deleted tweets this week that used Obama-era photos of border detention facilities in an effort to slam President Trump's treatment of illegal immigrants. That's essentially the images that you've seen throughout this ongoing debate. The Trump administration is dropping a plan to curb billions of dollars in annual rebates that drug makers give middlemen in Medicare, the proposal it had um, Uh, said would drive down the prices consumers pay for prescription drugs. And a French tax on tech companies was uh, approved by Parliament on Thursday after the Senate approved a final version of the bill 
In defiance of a U.S. investigation, U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer on Wednesday announced an investigation amid the Trump administration concerns that the measure unfairly targets U.S. tech firms. The digital services tax would apply to rather would apply a three percent levy on tech firms with at least 750 million euros. That's about eight hundred and forty five million dollars in global revenue and twenty five million euros or two hundred and eighty one million dollars of digital sales in France. We're going to take a quick break. A reminder that uh, coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Jack Alexander. Uh, We'll talk about the report that is a collaboration between Reimagine and Barna. It's simply called The Mercy Journey. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We learned today that former President Bill Clinton claimed that he took four trips accompanied by the Secret Service on billionaire sex offender Jeffrey Epstein's Lolita Express private airplane. But flight manifests reveal at least six separate journeys, two of which were without Secret Service. What that means, it's not healthy to speculate. Records also indicate that he knew Epstein for longer than he claims. And it turns out Chuck Schumer got thousands of in donations from Epstein. I mention all of that to say that there is growing concern on both sides of the aisle that the association with him uh, may reveal uh, luminaries from both sides of the political spectrum who associated with him in ways they were not ready to admit. Well, on this day in 1914, Babe Ruth makes his Major League Baseball debut, pitching the Boston Red Sox to a 4-3 victory over the Cleveland Naps, now Indians. In 1798, if we can look even further back, the U.S. Marine Corps is formally reestablished by a congressional act that also creates the U.S. Marine Band. And on this day in 1804, Vice President Aaron Burr mortally wounds former Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton during a pistol duel in Weehawken, New Jersey. Thankfully, we don't have those anymore. We just give one another tongue lashings. And on this day in 1952, the Republican National Convention meeting in Chicago nominates Dwight D. Eisenhower for president and Richard M. Nixon for vice president. On this day in 1955, the U.S. Air Force Academy swears in its first class of cadets at its uh, temporary uh, headquarters at Lowry Air Force Base in Colorado. And finally, on this day in 1960, the novel To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee is first published by J.B. Lippincott and Company. Well, President Trump this afternoon, speaking at the White House, announced that he would immediately issue an executive order to get an accurate count of non-citizens and citizens in the United States, a measure the president said would be far more accurate than relying on a citizenship question in the 2020 consensus, or rather census. The move would make use of vast federal databases and free up information sharing among all federal agencies concerning who they know is living in the country. Today, I'm here to say we are not backing down in our effort to determine the citizenship status of the United States population. Uh, He was speaking to reporters in the Rose Garden after slamming uh, Democrats, uh, referring to them as far-left Democrats, seeking to conceal the number of illegal aliens in our midst. We will leave no stone unturned, the president asserted. He called legal opposition to adding a citizenship question to the 2020 census meritless, but said the ongoing judicial morass in several federal district courts made it logistically impossible to resolve the matter before the 2020 census forms needed to be printed. Speaking after the president, Attorney General Bill Barr said the information collected via the executive order could be useful in determining the makeup of the Electoral College and congressional apportionment. That information will be used for countless purposes. For example, there is a current dispute over whether illegal aliens can be included for appoint apportionment purposes. We will be studying the issue. 
Census counts, which by law include illegal immigrants, are used to determine the allocation of seats in the House of Representatives for the next 10 years. The number of electors afforded each state in the Electoral College and the distribution of some $675 billion in federal spending. The Census Bureau's own experts have said requiring information about citizenship would discourage illegal immigrants from participating and lead to a less accurate count. That, in turn, would redistribute money and political power away from many cities led by Democrats where immigrants tend to cluster. Barr also agreed with Trump that the Supreme Court decision last month posed insurmountable logistical but not legal barriers to asking citizenship uh, question on the census. The government already has started the lengthy and expensive process of printing the census questionnaire without the question. Additionally, Barr slammed media reports that the White House would issue an executive order in an attempt to illegally force a citizenship question on the census. Democrats characterized the president's move as a retreat and condemned the press conference. Uh, Trump had emphasized his exasperation at the situation earlier in the day at a White House conference focused on social media censorship of conservatives. We spent $20 billion on the census, Trump told attendees. They go through houses, they go up, they ring doorbells, they talk to people. How many toilets do you have? How many desks do you have? How many beds? What's their roof made of? What race are you? What country of origin are you from? The only thing we can't ask is, are you a citizen of the United States? Isn't that the craziest thing he went on to say? The president had said last week that he was very seriously considering an executive order to try to force the citizenship question's inclusion. Earlier in the day, ABC News first reported that the president would back down from the efforts to add the question to the 2020 census and instead would take executive action that instructs the Commerce Department to obtain an estimate of U.S. citizenship through other means. Multiple sources confirmed that reporting. And of course, the press conference confirmed his attack this afternoon. Well, South Carolina Democratic primary voters, more than half of whom are expected to be African-Americans, say former Vice President Joe Biden is the best candidate to handle racial issues. Even among black voters, he bests California Senator Kamala Harris, who pressed Biden on the issue during the first Democratic debate. If you want to parse a race as we do in this country in the 21st century, Kamala Harris is half Indian and her father is East Indian. While that is an African descent, she's not African-American. So perhaps that explains that in part. Uh, She had pressed Biden on the issue during the first Democratic debate. Biden apologized for remarks he made about working with segregationist senators in the 1970s at a Saturday campaign event in Sumter, South Carolina. Well, the Fox News poll that was released today finds Biden leading on an array of other key issues as well. Overall, Biden garners 35 percent among South Carolina Democratic primary voters in a race for the party's nomination, over twice the support of any other candidate. Bernie Sanders receives 14 percent and Kamala Harris is close behind at 12 percent. All others trail, including Elizabeth Warren at 5 percent, Cory Booker, 3 percent, Pete Buttigieg at 2 percent, John Delaney, Marion Williamson, Andrew Yang at 1 percent each. One in five is undecided, a group uh, that includes twice as many women, 25 percent as men, 12 percent. South Carolina's Democratic primary is February 29th, 2020. Among black voters, Biden's support hits 41 percent with Sanders at 15 percent, Harris at 12, Booker 4, Warren at 2, Buttigieg, Tim Ryan and Williamson again at 1 percent respectively. Among Caucasian voters, Biden receives 25 percent of the vote, followed by Harris at 13, Sanders 12, Warren at 11. These are early days, so things certainly could change. Well, CNN is suffering a credibility crisis as viewership for the once proud network continues to cater, or rather, crater. 
I think both are probably true, with no apparent plan in place to fix things anytime soon, according to media watchdogs and insiders. CNN's audience shriveled in the second quarter of 2019, averaging only 541,000 total viewers, less than half of Fox News Channel's 1.3 million average. But CNN struggled even more during the primetime hours of 8 to 11 Eastern Time, finishing as the 15th most watched network on basic cable behind networks such as TLC, Investigation, Discovery, and the Hallmark Channel. CNN averaged a dismal 761,000 primetime viewers, while Fox News Channel averaged 2.4 million. The Hill media guru, Joe um, Concha, said that CNN's freefall may not be uh, slowing. The numbers warrant concern. Yes, quarter two was the a particularly news-rich quarter highlighted by the release of the Mueller report and all the aftermath and controversy following it, plus the launch of several high-profile Democratic candidacies, including Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg, to propel 2020 coverage into high gear. It may only get worse in quarter three, given the numbers we're already seeing. CNN did not respond when asked for comment, but started off uh, the, the third quarter with the network's lowest average since 2015 when it comes to primetime viewers among the key demographic of adults, 25 to 54. But the network has extended various contributors through the election, indicating that its apparent anti-Trump uh, programming strategy will remain in place for at least the duration of the president's first term. And nearly a month after the House Oversight Committee voted to hold Attorney General Bill Barr and Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross in contempt, House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer announced that the full House will vote on the matter on Tuesday. It was June 12th when the committee voted that Barr and Ross should be held in contempt of Congress for not complying with subpoenas for records pertaining to the Trump administration's decision to add the citizenship question to the 2020 census. We will hold this administration accountable for continued obstruction and oppose efforts to undermine the census, Hoyer said in a Thursday tweet. Now, it's not clear, given the president's um, position now, in which he is not going to place or attempt further to place the question on the uh, the census the 2020 census, if that will uh, continue or remain the priority. But House Democrats have been trying to get records that would explain why the administration um, has been trying to include the citizenship question. Ross claimed that the Department of Justice pushed for it to add enforcement to the Voting Rights Act, but the Supreme Court found that that was a pretext. The high court's ruling said that a citizenship question could be permitted in theory, but there had to be a valid reason for it, which is sort of interesting since it's been on the since it's um, for most of our nation's history. Democrats have come out against the, the citizenship question, claiming that it would discourage people from responding to the census, affecting the amount of federal funding and the drawing of district maps in areas with large immigrant populations. 30 minutes after four o'clock is our time. When we return, we'll talk with ja- uh, Jack Alexander. He's an author. He's also with the Reimagine Group. Uh, who, along with uh, the Barna Group, authored a survey, The Mercy Journey, and a resource for churches. More on that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Scripture mandates that the people of God are to love mercy. You'll find it in Micah 6, 8. And Jesus once instructed a group of listeners to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Matthew nine thirteen. God desires his people to be living expressions of his mercy on earth. How can we honor his instruction? 
Where does mercy fit into our understanding of the gospel and how can we embrace mercy so it overflows into our actions, our conversations and our relationships? Well, new data from Barna Group show that the church at large lacks consensus in answering these questions. Informed by these findings, Barna and the Reimagine Group have produced a comprehensive uh, suite of tools that will help lead the church, the family and teams to deepen their awareness and embrace of mercy in our hearts, our homes, churches and communities. It's shaped by the insights of ministry experts and practitioners. And here to talk with us about that is Jack Alexander. He is the author of The God Impulse, The Power of Mercy in an Unmerciful World, and founder of the Reimagine Group, who, along with Barna, produced the Mercy Journey, bringing hope and healing to a broken world. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Georgine. Great to be with you. Well, let's start at the beginning and how the subject of mercy uh, this journey uh, that you write about and provide resources regarding how it came about. Yeah, well, when you look at the incivility and divisiveness that we're bombarded with every day, um, I was studying the Good Samaritan and at the same time taking a theology class, and I noticed in this theology textbook, Georgina, it was 1,200 pages long and had one paragraph on mercy. So it was a hint to me that we may not have been understanding this as well as we should. Mm. Now, I think some of us may not fully understand the meaning of mercy outside the context of you see someone is injured and you have mercy on them. But in the context of our everyday interactions with others, people with whom we agree and those with whom we disagree, when we have conflicts, for example, in the church or within our own family, can you help us better understand what mercy means in that context of daily life? Yes, uh, very simply, it's an engaged heart. Uh, Microsoft found that the average human attention span is eight seconds. And when you're sitting with a with your spouse or a family member or a friend or just somebody you know at work, um, they can tell very quickly whether your heart is engaged with them. And with these short attention spans, I think it's we're really in sort of a mercy crisis. And, you know, that's why I wrote this book. So where do we begin to recognize, first of all, and I, I quoted a couple of scriptures um, regarding the subject of mercy, but where do we begin to recognize the value and, and the importance of mercy as a guiding principle um, through life? Where do we start? Well, it's important when you look at Scripture, like Psalm 25:10 says, all the ways of the Lord are mercy and truth. And Psalm 85:10 says, when mercy and truth kiss, righteousness and peace come together. So you see this dynamic combination in the ministry of Jesus. You, he preached but imagine him looking into your eyes or touching you. I mean, the, the tone, the focus of his voice, you could, you could see his compassion while you're hearing these words of truth. So I think very, very much that it's this combination of mercy and truth coming together. And what I've found in the research that, is that conservatives have an appropriate high view of truth and a lower view of mercy, and liberals have a high view of mercy and a lower view of truth. So they end up fighting together, and mm. we experience that every day. Well, let's talk about um, some of the more sobering, and that certainly would be, and shocking results that came out of this research. Yes, the most shocking, and in my book, I talked about the outsourcing of compassion. You know, the number of nonprofits has grown to 1.6 million, you know, and it's it's doubled in the last 20 years. And so by, when I hired Barna, they found that only 80, well, 83% of Christians said it's not their personal responsibility to show mercy. So they think it's the government. They think it's the church. 
They think it's uh, Samaritan's Purse. They think it's IJM. And, and there's some great, great organizations who do this work. But it's when we do hands-on thing, when we are with people that are different than us and we have an engaged heart and we build relationships with them, that it really makes a difference. In the Mercy journey, you make the point that um, mercy is an investment. Um, talk a little bit about what you mean by that and how we can change our thinking and orientation away from that's somebody else's job. And as long as I financially invest in what they're doing, it's really not my problem. Georgina, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that was probably my biggest takeaway in the last three years was Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And I think I always looked at it as something that was timely, costly, messy. And really, I've seen in my own life as God has stretched me in this area that that his daily mercies return to me. I, I call it sort of a non-financial sowing and reaping. When we sow mercy in the lives of other people, and this is not just the poor, the widows, orphans, or victims of hurricanes or something like that. It's also prisoners and our enemies. And that was another big finding, that the church's understanding of mercy is often victims rather than enemies and prisoners and people who have crossed some sort of boundary, whether it's my individual boundary or a society boundary. Yeah, my mercy only extends as far as you don't offend me by crossing one of those boundaries. That tends to be our position. Thankfully, that's not the position God took toward us. Well, when people say, what can I do? I say, well, 23% of Christians have somebody in their life they can't forgive, Barna tells us. And among millennials, it's 33%. And David Kinnaman, who owns Barna, says, Jack, I think these percentages are understated. Mm. So we're really a religion of forgiveness. And the Lord's Prayer, it says, we'll be forgiven as we forgive. But we seem to have this block of being able to forget for to forgive. And I interviewed Tim Keller about this, and I said, Tim, do you think it's possible to forgive someone without really having mercy for them? And he says, Jack, I really don't think it, it is possible. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm just struck by the fact that that's probably an underestimation, and how sad it is, and what it says about us as followers of Christ, our misunderstanding of what it is He's actually calling us to do. Now, the mercy journey is divided into four sections. Let's talk about each of those sections, mercy in our heart, our homes, churches, and communities. Um, Describe for our listeners how each of these sections addresses how we as followers of Christ ought to live that mercy that we have received. Well, again, it starts with our own hearts. And I think we've got to realize, like Jack Alexander was an enemy of God. Jesus pursued me. He, he, He loved me. He died for me. And so I think that it starts with with my heart change and realizing what Jesus did for me, and that allows me to have an engaged heart with others. And then taking that into our home, having that balance of mercy and truth in our home. I think, again, if we're conservatives and we have a tendency to to over-index truth to mercy, that would be a challenge I would give to all of us is how are we engaging with our children? How are we listening to them? How are we creating an environment for them to succeed? And then we go from our home into our church that obviously this is a build and that we can be in community with each other and we can provide a safe place for others to share. I think a truth-oriented culture is going to scare a lot of people away from sharing both their needs and their sins. And finally, the community, if we're really empowered in our church and we're in community, 
uh, in our church, then we can go to our community, to people who are different than us. Uh, last week, I had the opportunity. There's an African-American young man, and he's been a prisoner, and he's been homeless, and I've mentored him for 36 years. Mm. And I had lunch with him, and it took probably an hour and a half to be with him, and he's becoming a carpenter, and you know, I helped get him some tools. And you know, he's sending me these texts and just thanking me. And you know, the, the word mercy in Hebrew is rakem, which means womb. And for a woman, when she's pregnant, she's shaping the baby, but the baby's also shaping her. And I drove back from that lunch, and I realized that I've been reshaped. And I think that when we get in relationships with people, when we open our hearts and extend that compassion to others who are different than us, we get reshaped. And I think that's such an important part of our sanctification. We're talking about the mercy journey, bringing hope and healing to a broken world. It's a resource available Uh, to churches and others who take seriously what the gospel says is our charge. We're going to continue our conversation with Jack Alexander in just a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 49 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Jack Alexander. He is an author, The God Impulse, The Power of Mercy in an Unmerciful World. And he's the founder of the Reimagine Group, who, along with uh, Barna, has authored The Mercy Journey. It's a resource for the church, for families, for those who are interested in taking the, uh, the scriptures seriously and our need to forgive Uh, because we have been forgiven. Now, one of the stats that you referenced earlier um, says that one in four practicing Christians has a person in their life uh, they just can't forgive. How is it that we forget so easily that we have been forgiven much when it comes to extending forgiveness to others? This is a a disappointing and shocking stat, but it's very telling as well. Well, the importance in understanding mercy is we don't deserve it. We didn't deserve it from God, and people don't deserve it from us. And yet, it's a real tiebreaker. I think mercy begins by understanding someone's story. And I would encourage myself, every listener, to to just think of that one person that you're struggling with right now, and would it be possible to go to them and just ask them some open-ended questions and just get to know their story And that could that cast things in a different light that could open up your heart and you could extend that mercy or or forgiveness to them? If we hear the story and it's not satisfactory, we don't have a natural response of, oh, now I get it. We're still called to extend mercy? Yes, we still are. I think it's uh, it's part of our will. And, Mm -hmm. And again, when we look at that Jesus, the, the most merciful thing that ever happened is the wrath that we deserve collided with Jesus's mercy at the cross, and mercy won. And so I think that whatever wrath we're feeling towards the person, it's like when Jesus talked about the uh, merciless servant. You know, we've been forgiven so much more than what we need to forgive. And if we can't do it, I think we've lost touch with really what Jesus did for us. Yeah, and the the uh, the weight of our own sin. I mean, I think we kind of have gradations of it. You know, I wasn't that bad. And in fact, God got a little bit of a bargain, but there are other people that, you know, really, they were on the brink. We we really forget how far off we were and the extent to which he went to reconcile us to himself through the high cost of the cross. Well, I think pride is sort of that secret sin. Mm-hmm. When we become God and it's hard to see. It's hard to be called out on. And 
you know, as a businessman, I'd experienced success, some success, and you know, God really revealed the pride in my heart, and I realized that that that's the sin of the devil. It's the mother of all sins, and whether it's homosexuality or greed or idolatry or whatever you want to think of, that I began to see other people in the world as much better than myself if if I had had succumbed to pride. Mm, such a good uh, a good perspective. Now, are church leaders communicating mercy? Uh, in the church? Is that where part of the deficit comes? And how can they be better equipped? And I ask the question because I know that the mercy journey uh, that we're talking about is a resource that can help rectify any deficit there might be. Well, I think the primary problem I found with the church is they define mercy, again, as widows, orphans, victims, things that I could have been a victim, I could have been a widow, I could have been an orphan. And so we can identify with people. And so we want to help those people. But when you, again, you become a lawbreaker, somebody violated my boundaries, somebody's in prison, they violated uh, by a five to one ratio, we want to forgive victims rather than enemies. And by a 10 to one factor, we want to forgive and show mercy to uh, victims rather than, than prisoners. So these are wild statistics, and yet I think the fruit, Jesus went to lawbreakers. He went to prostitutes. Mm-hmm. He went to sinners. He went to drunks. He, he hung around with people, and his reputation among the Pharisees was trashed because he did. And yet I think that we can have that same tendency of wanting to be with people like us, forgiving people like us, but when people start violating these boundaries— they're sort of off limits. So I think the church needs to flip its definition of mercy, because when Jesus talked about mercy, the expert in the law and the Good Samaritan, he picked a story of a of a person who was an outcast giving mercy to a Jew, so and to an enemy. And so that's how Jesus described mercy, and yet our churches are talking about it as very victim-oriented. Mm. We're to love the perpetrators and the instigators, the the enemies. Now, I think for many of us, we are reluctant to extend mercy in those uh, cases because we assume that if we extend mercy, we are somehow endorsing the the wrongdoing that's that's taken place. Can you help to reconcile that in our hearts that when you extend mercy, as we have uh, received mercy— that it's not endorsing or somehow embracing and accepting a behavior that falls outside what's acceptable, but we are following the example of Christ, first of all, and doing what he has expressed is his desire for us in being ambassadors of Christ. Well, when you're enabling or becoming codependent with someone, you're not really showing mercy. In the book, I say you always show mercy unless showing mercy isn't being merciful. And so if the right thing for someone is to draw a strong boundary, um, basically tough love, that can be the most merciful thing you can do in many circumstances. So it's not always just laying down and rolling over. But I think that when you show mercy to a perpetrator, it's a shock. It shocks the system because people people are feeling shame. They're feeling guilt. And, and Georgine, in the last couple of years of interviewing probably over a hundred Christians. I, I talk about the prodigal son and the father running to somebody who totally messed up his life. And I say to people, how many times has that happened to you? Mm. And literally people will tear up and say, I can't remember one time when I totally messed up and someone ran to me and embraced me. So I think that 
again, that's when Jesus talked to the Pharisees, he talked about the Good Samaritan, he talked about the prodigal son. He gave these these stories of mercy to shock the Pharisees who thought they had it all right. And and so I think that when we have a child that's maybe gotten pregnant out of wedlock, we've had someone I had someone recently who stole, stole checks from me, and I got with him, and I said, why did you do that? And he said, he's a very poor guy, and he says, I used to take them around to show people that I knew you. And I thought, this guy was borrowing my reputation. I thought, and the Holy Spirit basically convicted me, and he says, you borrow the reputation of Jesus every oh, day. That's, that's so, so good. So I, I think when we engage with people and have an engaged open heart, it gives God the chance to really do a miracle. Mm, that's so good. Explain the relationship between mercy and justice. Well, I'm so glad that you brought that up because young people today are crying out for a just society. Yes. And if you look at the four steps in my book of, uh, of mercy, as Jesus described it, it's see, he saw and he felt compassion for the enemy, go, he went to him. The third step is the step of justice. He did a bunch of great stuff for the person and endure. He says, I'm going to, when I return, I'm going to come back. And again, he spent the night with them. So that engaged heart, that God impulse, I call it, is step one. Justice is step three. And so we say, Georgine, that justice grows in the womb of mercy. And yet if we don't have that open heart, that engaged heart, I don't think we're going to end up with a just world. We need to start with love. Why is cultivating empathy a powerful component in the teaching of mercy? Well, the data, again, showed that if you've been homeless, if you've been on government assistance, if you've really messed up in a certain area, you you are apt to show more more mercy. And I think that sometimes in the conservative church, we sort of shoot the wounded. We we don't allow people to take their pain and their failure and help them use it productively in the ministry to others. How do you hope this resource, The Mercy Journey, um, will help our listeners, as well as your book, which uh, draws on much of the information that uh, that this uh, survey provides, the God impulse, the power of mercy in an unmerciful world? What do you hope of people will take away from this uh, this exploration of their own hearts to determine if they are merciful and if they're allowing the Holy Spirit to produce in them what God calls us to become? Well, I think really two things. I think if there was a mercy revolution in the church, it could break down this incivility and divisiveness that we have. Second, this August in Atlanta, we've initiated a a whole conference that over 1,100 people are, are attending, Louis Giglio speaking and John Perkins and we're leveraging this data into the race conversation. And we're having a day of lament on August 25th and a 21-day fast before that to lament the full, what's happened to African-Americans for the last 400 years. It's the anniversary of the slaves coming to Jamestown. So we're hoping to very practically use these principles to provide healing in this racial uh, division and, and pain that we see. Now, for people who are interested in more uh, information on that effort, as an African-American, I'm very interested. Where can we learn more? Well, go to oneracemovement.com. Um, we've got videos on there. Last August, we had 25,000 come to pray 
against the sin of racism. We had over a thousand millennials climb Stone Mountain, which is the largest Confederate uh, monument uh, in the United States, and dedicate their generation to racial healing and unity. And so we're building on that in Ezekiel 9. It says to lament and grieve and wail over abominations and injustices, and all those have happened to African-Americans for 400 years. And, you know, we're starting a fund called the Leadership 400 Fund to aggregate capital to help young African-American leaders get be educated and mentored. So we're really taking all this very seriously. Very seriously. Well, Jack Alexander, thank you so much for talking with us today. Well, God bless you. You as well. Again, the uh, Mercy Journey, you can find it. Reimagine Barna are the publishers. And The God Impulse, his book, uh, is also published by the same, and you can find that as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is producing. Clark Hilton is engineering. Well, the White House is reportedly picking plans back up to apprehend and deport thousands of immigrants in the country illegally who have ignored court orders to leave the country. Immigration and Customs Enforcement on Sunday is going to launch raids across major U.S. cities, according to Homeland Security officials who spoke with The New York Times and NBC News. The Sunday raids will target roughly 2,000 illegal aliens who, despite court orders to leave, continue to remain in the U.S. Targeted cities include Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, Miami, and others. The president in June announced plans to deport millions, in quotes, of illegal immigrants, but he later postponed those plans, telling the public he wanted to allow time to negotiate with congressional Democrats on a solution to the immigration crisis. It is likely that the plans were so also scrapped because key details were leaked to the media, however. Well, the president has since said his administration was ready to renew that operation. These are people where we have uh, their papers. Uh, we've gone through the court system. The deportations will be starting fairly soon, but I don't uh, call them raids. We're removing people that have come, all these people over the years that have come to the country illegally. We're removing them and bringing them back into their country, he said. Well, Ken Cuccinelli, the newly appointed acting director of U.S. Customs and Immigration Services, also said that ICE agents were ready to apprehend and deport aliens who were ignoring court orders. Uh, they're ready to just perform their mission, which is to go and find and detain and then deport the approximately one million people who have uh, final removal orders. And again, that's the, the emphasis, those who have had final removal orders. Well, the ICE raids, the president prefers they not be called that, but are expected to last several days, also include collateral deportations, the apprehensions of those who were not original ICE targets but happened to be at the scene. If possible, family units who are arrested in unison will be taken to family detention centers in Pennsylvania and Texas, but some may be placed in hotel rooms. The goal, according to officials who spoke to the New York Times, is to deport families as soon as possible who have received those final deportation orders. Well, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said today that the global economy could suffer unthinkable damage if the White House and Congress fail to raise the federal debt limit. Now, interestingly enough, and you might recall our conversation yesterday in which I made the point that raising the federal debt limit uh, threatens to accelerate uh, the the challenge and the crisis that the country is facing with the uh, ever-rising debt. But testifying before the Senate Banking Committee, the Fed chair said it was essential for Congress to raise the legal limit on the federal debt before the U.S. government defaults on its loans. 
Uh, We've always paid our bills, and it simply must happen that Congress raises the debt ceiling in time to allow that to happen. Because they keep spending, the ceiling has to keep uh, being ris- raising. The ceiling has to be raised. I'll put it that way. Well, the consequences of inaction, he went on to say, would be highly unpredictable. He added and warned that no one should assume that the Fed or any other agency can be relied upon to shield our economy from the short, medium, and long-term negative consequences of such an act. His remarks come as lawmakers and the administration face growing pressure to strike a deal to avoid mandatory budget cuts and lift the debt ceiling which was automatically reimposed March the 1st. And while the federal government is legally barred from taking on more debt, the Treasury Department has been able to, well, stave off a default through extraordinary measures. That's what they call them, such as delaying and prioritizing certain investments and debt payments. Well, Treasury's ability to delay default uh, was expected to last until at least early October, but a forecast released this week by the Bipartisan Policy Center projected extraordinary measures to run out by early to mid-September, month earlier. Well, the House is set to break for summer recess on the 26th of this month, with the Senate leaving a week later, giving lawmakers much less time than initially expected to complete difficult negotiations they've got lots of other hearings to hold on things that don't really benefit the American people. Well, if Congress said the White House cannot reach a deal to raise the debt ceiling by the end of the month, if government may have mere days to prevent a catastrophic default when lawmakers return to Washington in September, as the um, Fed chair put it, this would be unthinkable and would uh, harm the country in uh, significant ways. On the other hand, to continue to raise the debt ceiling is unthinkable and will harm the country down the road in unthinkable ways. So spending, I guess, has to be addressed in some measurable way. Well, five Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps gunboats tried to seize a British oil tanker in the Strait of Hormuz. And it's only one strait. You know, you tend to say Straits of Hormuz. It's Strait of Hormuz. I'm correcting myself. And that was yesterday, but backed off after a British warship approached. A senior U.S. defense official confirmed the British warship was said to have been less than five miles behind the tanker, but soon intercepted the Iranian boats, threatened to open fire. A manned U.S. reconnaissance aircraft was above as well, adding that Iranian forces left without opening fire. Well, Navy Captain Bill Urban, spokesman for the U.S. Central Command, said the military was aware of the reported actions, and he added threats to international National freedom of navigation require an international solution. The world economy depends on the five, uh, the free flow rather of commerce, and it is incumbent on all nations to protect and preserve this linchpin of global prosperity. Well, the British frigate uh, was identified as the HMS Montrose, according to the Sun. The vessel reportedly trained its 30 millimeter uh, deck guns on the enemy fleet and warned them off. The incident was the latest in a series of provocations between the Islamic Republic and the West. British forces last week seized an Iranian supertanker that officials believed was operating in violation of European Union sanctions. The British Royal Marines captured the vessel in Gibraltar after believing it was trying to provide crude oil to Syria, an ally of Iran. Iranian President Hassan Rouhani warned that Brit, the uh, Brits uh, that they would face repercussions over the seizure. Perhaps what happened yesterday was that effort. Well, last month, Iran shot down a U.S. drone over the Strait of Hormuz, a vital waterway separating Iran from the United Arab Emirates. Oil exporters transport around 22 million barrels of oil per day through that strait. 
Well, U.S. officials also blamed Iran for attacks on six oil tankers in the area. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has accused the regime of trying to disrupt the flow of oil in the area. Tensions between Iran and the United States have been escalating in recent weeks and could spiral downward after Iran admitted on Monday it surpassed uranium enrichment levels that were set by the Iranian nuclear agreement in 2015. President Trump pulled the U.S. out of that deal, claiming that it was not a good deal for the U.S., Uh, The other signatories, Russia, China, Germany, France, Britain and the European Union, have called on Iran to stick to its commitments under the deal, the deal that they still have with them. Iran has abandoned restraint in recent months as it seeks relief from U.S. sanctions. The Republic has asked the deal's signatories to provide economic incentives in exchange for the de-escalation of its nuclear program. The president has indicated that he will impose additional sanctions on Iran, urging those nations not to give in to its demands. Economically, uh, Iran has been crippled by those sanctions, uh, which, again, the president is threatening to continue to escalate. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're taking a look at some of the, the top stories of the day. We'll be back in just a few moments after a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, experts are pointing to some well-worn ideas and a few novel concepts as a solution to Portland's seemingly endemic protest violence. Um, Events unfolded differently here in Portland uh, recently. Some um, violence broke out when Antifa and another group of uh, uh, Proud Boys squared off against uh, these two well, opposite ends of the continuum. But once again, Portland was uh, thrust into the crosshairs after a, a battlefield broke out in downtown on Saturday, June the 29th. Well, experts say it's past time for the city's politicians and the Portland Police Bureau to learn the lessons of previous protests. The failure to properly police these events has allowed an increasing level of violence to occur. That's what Michael German, who is a counterterrorism analyst, uh, with, uh, told the uh, Portland Tribune. German said he observed political clashes up and down the West Coast for decades, such as the World Trade Organization protests in Seattle in 99. When I started seeing this series of riots, he said, it surprised me that the police weren't better at separating the groups. His advice was has taken root elsewhere. In D.C., for example, the setting was similar, a small huddle of conservatives dwarfed by hundreds of liberal counter-protesters, some masking their faces, but the outcomes uh, diverged from there. The groups had little interaction, in part because of the scores of police officers among them. The New York Times uh, reporter at the scene wrote at the time, in Washington, D.C., authorities corralled each side into adjacent public spaces with a wall of badges in between. When anti-fascists attempted to erect barricades, bicycle police quickly turned the crowd back. Skirmishes were de-escalated almost immediately, according to the Washington Post. Well, after many of the conservatives entered a local watering hole, police lingered outside, preventing the sort of clash that occurred on the patio at Cider Riot in northeast Portland on the 1st of May, which triggered a million-dollar lawsuit against Patriot Prayer leader Joey Gibson. In Portland, however, events on uh, May Day already have been eclipsed by the latest round of street warfare. On the 29th, milkshake-themed dance parties uh, marred by the beating of a local conservative commentator, although he really isn't a conservative commentator, but that's one way of distinguishing him from his rivals. And mutual combat on Southwest 6th Avenue and Morris Street by Pioneer Courthouse Square. Well, the six-hour-long protest was punctuated by only brief outbursts of fighting, but those seconds were widely disseminated on 
online, leaving millions with the impression that Portland streets are continuously roaming and controlled by armed thugs wearing masks. At least the Washington Examiner editorialized that very version. Well, some solutions seem um, obvious. Again, Mr. Ver- German, uh, now with the uh, Brennan Center for Justice after a 16-year career with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, says many figures gain no- notoriety by participating in street brawls and questions why these identified um, subjects aren't arrested and prosecuted. Of course, there have been attempts at a solution in Portland, but they haven't worked well. Mayor Wheeler's first attempt at time, place, and manner restrictions for rallies went down in flames in November with dissenting commissioners Chloe Udaly and Nick Fish and Amanda Fritz citing fears of unconstitutional restriction of free speech. Opponents were concerned the police would only apply the restrictions against liberal groups and not against the right-wing extremists, as they were uh, noted. Uh, Mary McCord of the Georgetown um, uh, who is a Georgetown law professor who submitted a letter in favor of the ordinance in recent uh, interview. McCord says right-wing groups are more willing to communicate with authorities and apply for demonstration permits, a natural focal point for police to anchor skirmish lines, though the optics may be um, a miscast as endorsement or protection of one faction. She recommends police line up facing both directions rather than turning their backs on one side and suggests deploying Um, magnetometers and establishing a stadium environment. If you establish separate entrances for protesters and counter-protesters, people will self-select. Well, to be fair, police have tried dividing protesters into opposing camps at Chapman Square and Terry Shrunk Park on multiple occasions. Department of Homeland Security officers conducted bag searches at entry points to the federal plaza during a protest on the 3rd of June of last year. The day ultimately ended in violence and four arrests. However, while complicating matters, the most high-profile victim of the late June protest, Andy No, a writer who was punched, battered with signs, and doused with liquid while live-streaming the black-clad column as it marched near Multnomah County Justice Center. He didn't immediately respond um, for comment. I mean, he was recovering from his injuries. But Michael Strickland, another live streamer, also talked about the situation in uh, Portland's protest that ended as so many do. He says, if we um, take the beating, the police won't be there to help us and the perps won't ever be identified, Strickland said in a chat room interview. If we defend ourselves and we go to jail and the violent ones who start the fights instantly become the victims. Well, Strickland was charged with pulling a gun during a Black Lives Matter protest in 2016. His conviction currently is under consideration by the Oregon Court of Appeals. So I'm not sure he's the best spokesperson on the subject. He suggests sending the combatants out into the woods to trade blows away from the watchful eyes of law enforcement. Well, gee, that sounds like a good plan if you want to see people maimed and perhaps killed. McCord, the senior litigator, wants the police bureau to consistently enforce the permits required for large gatherings or street marches. During a July 8th news conference, the mayor noted that the Portland police don't typically enforce permit regulations for street marches, though the mayor is considering a variety of new strategies. Let's hope he applies them soon. German said it's about regaining trust. It's really incumbent on the police department to be transparent, both in acknowledging problems with their previous tactics and how they improve going forward. Strickland isn't the first person to float the battle royale style solution. Wheeler signed on in uh, March. As he said at the time, do us all a favor, rent a boxing ring. Well, that's really no solution, but I understand his frustration, which in part he's responsible for creating the scenario to produce that frustration. Let's hope and pray that wisdom prevails in Portland City Hall moving forward. Meanwhile, um, the Portland City Council almost unanimously, one member, Amanda Fritz, was on vacation, passed a resolution opposing any and all restrictions on abortion access in the city of Portland. 
Uh, abortion is legal until the moment of birth here in Oregon. This resolution is completely unnecessary, a waste of city's resources, says the Oregon Right to Life Executive Director Lois Anderson. Oregon has zero restrictions on abortion, and in fact, abortion rights have been built into our statutes. Well, the resolution was championed by Commissioner Joanne Hardesty, a former board member of NARAL Pro-Choice Oregon PAC. Portland Citizens Hardesty, um, or Anderson says, have many pressing needs for their city council to address. I just mentioned one, by the way. Um, a charade on behalf of their donors is not one of those needs. Well, to support our last statement, the following information is from the Oregon Secretary of State's website. Mayor Ted Wheeler received $1,500 from Planned Parenthood Advocates of Oregon, 900 from Planned Parenthood PAC of Oregon, 200 from Planned Parenthood of Willamette Valley. Commissioner Joanne Hardesty received $450 from NARAL. Commissioner Chloe Udaley received $1,050 from Planned Parenthood PAC. Commissioner Nick Fish received $1,050 from Planned Parenthood PAC. Uh, so it seems to me that um, perhaps uh, signing on to a, an unnecessary a resolution is completely in keeping with um, supporting those who financially support their campaigns. Meanwhile, a ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled seven to four today, lifting injunctions that previously blocked enforcement of the Trump administration's Title X Protect Life rule. The rule cuts off federal funding to organizations that provide abortions in the same facilities as other services financed by taxpayer dollars. The rule can now go into effect. Well, the federal appeals court rejected emergency bids to temporarily set aside its recent decision, allowing the rule to go into effect as litigation on the ter- the merits continue in the Fourth Circuit and in the District Court of Maine. The three-judge panel found that the rule was likely to win on the legal merits of the regulation. This regulation will stop federal funding flowing to Planned Parenthood by approximately $60 million. The Department of Health and Human Services issued the rule to stop the flow of Title X federal funds to family planning facilities that perform abortions or do abortion referrals. The regulation means that clinics that receive federal family planning grants called Title X, which pay for birth control, testing for sexually transmitted diseases and cancer screening, will not be allowed to be housed in the same buildings as those that also provide abortion. The rule applies to a $286 million a year grant that 4 million low-income people use. Planned Parenthood previously has received between 50 to $60 million from the grants. Title X program was enacted in the 70s as part of the Public Health Service Act to provide family planning assistance primarily to low-income families. Um, Representative Chris Smith, who's the chairman, Republican chairman of the Congressional Pro-Life Caucus, stated that Title X funds were never meant to fund abortion services, given that the program was enacted three years before abortion was legalized nationwide. Uh, That certainly will not be the end of that, but while it's being litigated, the... uh, Uh, The plan will move forward. Well, a group of parents who oppose the Dallas school district's policy of allowing transgender students to use restrooms and locker rooms that correspond to their gender identity are asking a federal appeals court to revive the lawsuit. We're talking about an Oregon school district's restroom policy for transgender students going to the Ninth Circuit. U.S. District Judge Marco Hernandez a year ago threw out the suit, finding the school district policy didn't violate the privacy rights of other students who object to sharing the spaces. 
Parents for Privacy, about a half dozen parents of current and former Dallas students, contend that Hernandez failed to recognize that allowing students of one sex to access the privacy facilities of the opposite sex violates the 14th Amendment's right to bodily privacy. The parents also contend the policy violates Title IX by turning locker rooms and restrooms into sexually harassing environments and forcing other students to not use them to avoid potential harassment. Title IX prohibits sex discrimination in any federally funded education program or activity. The issues on appeal all about um, all turn rather on whether persons of the opposite sex may invade privacy areas traditionally reserved for a single sex. The group's attorney, Herbert Gray of Beaverton and Ryan Adams of Canby, wrote to the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. Lawyers from the American Civil Liberties Union of Oregon and the LGBTQ advocacy group Basic Rights Oregon will contend oral arguments at Pioneer Courthouse. And that took place earlier in the day and certainly will continue in one form or another. 30 minutes after 5 o'clock, we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as part of the American Psychological Association's LGBT activist agenda, it's created a task force to refute monogamous marriage and to normalize consensual non-monogamous relationships, which it refers to as consensual non-monogamy. It's complicated when you reject the moral core. Uh, CNM, as they refer to it, includes polygamy, polyamory, um, group sex relations, um, swinging, and so on. In fact, the APA task force has a petition to make people with multiple sexual partners a protected class. Uh, The Task Force on Consensual Non-Monogamy promotes awareness and inclusivity about consensual non-monogamy and diverse expressions of intimate relationships. These include, but are not uh, uh, rather limited to, people who practice a number of things I'm not going to delineate. Well, the APA has over 110,000 members, continues to allow a small group of uh, anarchists to define its position on sexuality instead of being a source of objective scientific information on sexuality or gender. According to the APA's official description of this um, recent initiative, Finding Love and or Intimacy is a central part of most human uh, people's life. Uh, experience, however, the ability to engage in desired intimacy without social and medical stigmatization is not a liberty for all. So their peer-reviewed and historic consensual non-monogamous literature studies include research on a variety of these um, these areas, and they are seeking to make this uh, a central tenet of the organization. Hmm. In a not-so-distant future, humans will merge with machines. Although that seems like something cooked up by a science fiction writer, according to a prominent historian, it's a reality that's not very far away, especially given how big tech has disrupted everything from commerce to relationships and the media, Amazon, Facebook, Google and Facebook. It's increasingly hard to tell, says one Yuval Harari, a professor of history at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, to tell where I end and where the computer begins. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't have any difficulty in that area. But he was speaking to an audience at the Fast Company European Innovation Festival this week. In the future, it's likely that the smartphone will not be separated from you at all. It may be embedded in your body or brain, constantly scanning your biometric data and your emotions. 
During his keynote address at the conference, Harari placed the possibility of humans physically merging with machines as distinct from previous advances that have harnessed technological innovation to improve our lives. The difference? Humans will be able to manipulate themselves. Now, he's not talking about medical devices that extend life or improve the quality of life. He's talking about technology that just makes us, well, one with our technology. Humanity has always remained constant, he says, with the same bodies, brains, minds, through the Roman Empire, biblical times, the Stone Age. He's authored several best-selling books that are beloved in Silicon Valley, including 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. He continues, if we told our ancestors in the Stone Age about our lives today, uh, they would think we were already gods. But the truth is that even though we have developed more sophisticated tools, we are the same animals, if you accept that description of oneself. We have the same emotions, the same minds. The coming revolution will change that. It will change not just our tools, it will change the human being itself. And we will be tools in ways that the current use of the phrase um, doesn't quite mate. According to Fast Company, which sponsored the event, Harari believes that we will inevitably manipulate ourselves in the coming years and points out that we've already manipulated animals while advances like in vitro fertilization can shape the creation of human life. Well, it doesn't actually create it, but it does assemble the parts that have been created. The Israeli historian also threw cold water on the dreams of tech CEOs who see humans setting up colonies on other planets. Not even the toughest bacteria on Earth can survive on Mars, he said. Homo sapiens cannot colonize other planets or galaxies. Harari, who speaks regularly with technologists and held a public conversation in April with uh, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, has suggested in his work that humans need to proceed with caution in the digital age. In his speech, he also warned that Silicon Valley's ability to capture and hijack our attention goes both ways. This is the basis of their business model. It's uh, hard for them to uh, to now say this is a bad idea. What will their, their shareholders think about it? With the best intentions, they're now captivated by the machines they have created. They are trapped. Well, we don't have to be trapped. but And again, I think for many of these technologists, as uh, they're described here, they don't allow the use of technology to, to dominate their lives. Most of their children don't have smartphones, we have been told. So they recognize the, uh, the downside of it. But we aren't trapped. We are, we're not reformed. We certainly might choose in the future, we meaning some, in the future. But that is not the inevitable course of human history. Well, when Australian rugby star Israel Folau's uh, team contract was terminated after he voiced the principles of his Christian faith, he turned to GoFundMe Australia to crowdsource funds for his legal action against Rugby Australia. Three days later, the popular fundraising platform took down his page with plans to refund all the donors who had decided, yeah, we want to support your efforts. As a company, they said, we are absolutely committed to the fight for equality and fostering an environment of inclusivity. GoFundMe Australia manager Nicole Britton uh, said, according to The Guardian, well, after his fundraising page was shut down, a non-party partisan, non-denominational group called Australian Christian Lobby reached out to Falau with the opportunity to host his fundraiser and donated $100,000 to the cause. The fundraiser raised over $1.5 million as of noon last Tuesday. Well, Falau, a former Wallabies player, had a $4 million contract with the Australian rugby team terminated in early April after he posted a meme on Instagram that read, Warning, drunks, homosexuals, adulterers, liars, fornicators, thieves, atheists, adulterers, um, or idolaters, hell awaits you, repent, only Jesus saves, end quote. Well, on the 6th of June, his legal representatives confirmed that he 
filed a lawsuit with the Australian Fair Work Commission claiming his contract was unlawfully terminated because of his religious beliefs. Later in June, Falau went to Instagram again to post the link to a GoFundMe campaign that he started to fund the lawsuit, soliciting his followers to support his legal battle. He shared that he and his wife, Maria, had already spent $100,000 on the case. And, of course, now unemployed, it was getting more difficult to move forward. So far, Maria and I have used over $100,000 of our savings, and I am willing to do what it takes for this case. But to continue, I need uh, to prioritize funding for my legal case. To those who believe in the right to practice religion without fear or discrimination in the workplace, here is my ask. Stand with me. I put the link on uh, in my bio. If you can and choose to donate, thank you from the bottom of my heart, and God bless you. And he goes on. Well, three days after the Instagram post, GoFundMe Australia removed his page. Uh, the page had received $750,000 in pledges as of Sunday night. Uh, Britain said the page was removed because it violated GoFundMe's term of service. After a routine period of evaluation, we've concluded that this campaign violates that term. She added that the uh, crowdsourcing platform exists to help people help others. GoFundMe didn't respond to uh, requests for comment on whether or not diverse points of view and opinions would be tolerated, which clearly they will not on that um, on the page. Meanwhile, don't say America wasn't warned during the oral argument for same-sex marriage in 2015. A question came up about the fallout for Christian education. Asked if religious schools could be punished for holding a natural view of marriage, U.S. Solicitor Donald Varelli was surprisingly honest. It's certainly going to be an issue. I don't deny that, Justice Alito. Uh, it's uh, going to be an issue. Well, four years later, that prophecy is coming to pass. Out in Maryland, a Christian school was uh, told by state officials that it can't participate in the voucher program anymore because of its biblical beliefs on marriage and sexuality. The leadership of Bethel Christian Academy was stunned. After all, it relied on that money to serve the school's 280 low-income kids. For two years, those vouchers were what made their option uh, to public school possible. Well, now intolerance uh, bureaucrats are telling Bethel that not only is it barred from the program, but it has to pay back the $100,000 it received already, which to a small academy like that one is in financial death sentence. Bethel Christian Academy offers an academically rigorous and caring Christian education in a diverse environment, the school's attorney told Alliance Defending Freedom. Nothing about its programs should be controversial, and until last year, nothing was. That's when the Maryland Department of Education disqualified the academy after looking through the school's handbook. In them, officials found statements of Bethel's biblical beliefs on marriage and sexuality, and according to school officials, that's discrimination. But if there's uh, any discrimination, it's not from Bethel Academy. The ADF's Christina Holcomb explained the school has never turned anyone away based on their sexuality. All it does is ask that students maintain a biblical standard of intimacy as the Bible teaches. It is a Christian school. Maryland led its hostility toward Bethel's religious views, not the law, decide the school's eligibility, said legal counsel. Maryland's families deserve better. And hopefully with a lawsuit against the state, they'll get it. Until then, every private school is on notice. When it comes to state programs, Christians need not apply. We'll continue to follow this story to determine what uh, will happen next. And after a religious freedom lawsuit, a federal judge this week blocked Tennessee's new ban on online ordination for wedding officiants, citing serious constitutional issues. 
the Universal Life Church Monastery, a top destination for giving friends and family credentials to perform ceremonies, had sued the volunteer state over the uh, policy, which it said grants a preference to certain religions and burdens its members' free exercise of religion. Well, the law was set to go into effect the 1st of July, but federal uh, Judge Waverly Crenshaw decided on Wednesday to allow weddings conducted by online ordained celebrants to resume until a trial later this year. Officials argue the policy was designed to ensure officiants were responsible enough to perform their duties on behalf of the state. Well, unlike most denominations, churches and religious organizations, nonprofits like the Universal Life Church and American Marriage Ministries exist primarily to ordain the growing number of friends and family members tapped to officiate weddings. Recent surveys show between a quarter and a half of U.S. ceremonies are now performed by loved ones rather than traditional ministers. And while Tennessee lawmakers see pastors and religious clergy as beyond the scope of the ban, since they already meet the legal standard of a considered, deliberate, and responsible act for ordination, the law could become an issue if churches begin to offer online ordination as a culmination of online theological training, according to the General Counsel at the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. So the uh, phrase, by the power vested in me by God or the Internet, the fight over online ordination is on. All right, we're going to take a break. 47 minutes after 5 o'clock, we'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. Final segment of the Georgine Rice Show on this stunning Thursday afternoon. Okay, maybe it was just a little bit of an overstatement. I thought um, Louis Debro had an interesting article in the Patriot Post in which the headline read, Baby Boomers Are Killing the American Dream. Now, wasn't that designated uh, the position for millennials that they're to blame for virtually everything? Well, he writes that millennials have become the object of much criticism and ridicule, and oftentimes they deserve it. But while millennials may whine and complain as they enjoy the fruits of the free market, there are serious structural issues facing them, the blame for which lies at the feet of previous generations, specifically the baby boomer generation. Now, the baby boomers are the children of the greatest generation. That generation scrimped and saved and struggled through the Great Depression, only to be thrown into an existential global crisis with the effort to defeat the military juggernaut that was the Axis powers of Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, and fascist Italy, who sought to enslave the world. In stark contrast, the baby boomers grew up enjoying unprecedented wealth, freedom, and privilege, and they rewarded future generations by ruining everything that made America great. Hmm. He offers an example. Under boomers, zoning laws have gotten much stricter, while initially used to control population density as industrialization led people to the cities. There was a drastic increase in land use restrictions between 1960s and the 80s. Today, riding the peak of their political power, boomers have used regulation for green space, parking, height limits, historic preservation, and so forth as a mechanism to artificially restrict new construction. Limiting new construction drives up the cost of existing buildings, making it much more expensive for young generations to obtain housing. When rents or mortgages are prohibitionally uh, expensive or It should be prohibitively, but we'll leave it at that. Uh, Expensive or force young generations into crowding, uh, crowding uh, living situations. The result is that, well, they still live at home. They delay the transition into uh, traditional adulthood events like marriage and having children, which ironically endangers their retirement as there are fewer children who will become workers paying into Social Security and Medicare. 
Well, this problem is compounded by the explosion in licensing requirements under boomers, where workers are required to have special licenses, degrees, or certifications in order to work. This drives up the cost of labor, making it harder for younger workers to obtain jobs. And while it may be reasonable to expect surgeons and structural engineers to obtain licenses and certifications, one is hard-pressed to justify laws requiring 1,200 hours of training and $18,000 in tuition to practice African hair braiding. I do it at home. Don't tell anybody. Well, like land use restrictions, licensing requirements artificially raise the bar for entry into the workforce, restricting the number of people practicing a profession, artificially driving up wages for older established workers while keeping out younger workers. Well, also increasing the difficulty of getting a good job is the expanding number of jobs requiring college degrees, which have become ridiculously expensive and leave young workers burdened with enormous debt as they start their careers. New studies show that lifetime earnings are staying flat even as the degree gets more expensive. Add to that the skyrocketing national debt accrued under baby boomers who have demanded ever more expensive government programs for every conceivable problem, each with a large and growing price tag. Medicare and Social Security are the primary drivers of the national debt, yet it's a political suicide to even contemplate reducing benefits for the boomers who are the most reliable voting bloc. Funding by payroll taxes from today's workers, Social Security is projected to be insolvent in just 16 years, which means younger generations will spend decades paying into an entitlement program that will be bankrupt when they retire. Well, just think how furious um, they'll be when they learn that the Supreme Court ruled decades ago that they have no right to Social Security benefits no matter how much or how long they've paid into the system. Then there's the $22 trillion national debt that places an enormous burden on future generations who will see more and more of their earnings swallowed up in federal spending. As of today, the Congressional Budget Office projects interest alone on the national debt will cost $389 billion this year, rising to $914 billion by 2028. This will take up an ever-growing portion of the federal budget, crowding out and forcing spending reductions on Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, military spending, infrastructure, education, and the myriad of other things the federal government has its hands in. Well, as federal spending takes more and more of workers' paychecks, it leaves less for state and local spending priorities and leaves workers with an ever-shrinking portion of their paycheck for housing, food, transportation, you know, stuff they don't really need. If there is one sliver of hope, rather, in these dark clouds, it is that the situation is bad but not irreversible. The problem is caused by the boomer penchant for spending money and controlling others. With a clear-eyed acknowledgement of the seriousness of the situation and the political will to change it, we can gut the mountain of regulations imposed by all levels of government, which will lead to an explosion of economic growth. Indeed, President Trump has already shown that uh, this can be done, slashing 22 regulations for every new one implemented. We can phase out west, uh, wasteful, redundant and inefficient federal programs and privatize everything that is not directly authorized under Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution. We can stop subsidizing higher education, let the free market work to improve quality and bring down tuition. We can make it a national mission to pay off the national debt, the fiscal equivalent of a moon landing. In order to do all of that, though, the boomers who voted for massive expansions of government and entitlement programs uh, that enrich them will have to be um, will have to place the nation's welfare ahead of their own. The question is then, will they or perhaps I should say, Will we? I'm at the tail end of that generation. I'd like to apologize to following generations. 
Coming up tomorrow on the program, it being Friday, we're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news. James Blend informed me earlier this week that he will not be joining me for the program. I mention it today so that you can uh, begin weeping now and will be fully cried out by uh, showtime tomorrow. In any event, we are going to have a fun Friday program and we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news. I don't know about you, but... I need a little bit of the lighter side of the news, so I hope you'll join us. want to thank James Blend, also known as Benedict Arnold, producer of the program, and Clark Hilton, today's engineer. Thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day, and have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.